Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And we had to take a, a week off kind of early on in the season, but it was uh, due mainly to my my schedule being uh, taken over by various pastoral concerns. And those always, of course, come first before we do our recordings. But uh, it is good to see you, Father. How, how have you been since our last meeting? Doing pretty well. Um, yeah, uh, I, I haven't had the, the kind of hectic pastoral schedule you've had, that's for sure. Um, but I did, uh, I did get a chance while we were sort of between episodes. I went up to Hackensack, New Jersey and, uh, was there for the SSC Provincial Synod and had a great time, um, had a lot of interesting conversations and I spread the good news about the Sacramentalist podcast. So hopefully, uh, we have some new listeners. Uh, and if you are, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. Blessed are the feet of those who bear good news. <laughs> so, how, well, how, how have you been, all things considered? Great. Yeah, no, uh, it's good to be busy with pastoral concerns. I mean, you know, sometimes it's rough in terms of what you're actually dealing with, but that you have people that you have to work with and, and pray with and talk to is a good thing. Um, so our, our parish has begun a, a reading group over at St. John's College on Sunday afternoons. We've been reading The Great Divorce with the students over there. We're about to read, I think, Justin Martyr's uh, First and Second Apologies and his Exhortation to the Greeks, which I'm very excited to read that one with them because that's where he you know goes into Sophocles and, um, and Homer and Plato and Aristotle and all that. And so it'll be really fun. So we've been doing that and just a ton of other things going on at the parish, which is excellent you know now that we're sort of emerging from covid and we're, we're getting new people and it's just great but it's a lot but in a good way it's good to stay busy if i wasn't busy i'd go crazy and i drive my wife crazy too i think so yeah i think that's a good kind of busyness it is it is um, especially i mean it sounds really interesting what you're doing at st john's i i definitely think that's fun you're gonna plunder the egyptians at st john's college that's right. That's exactly right. It's been awesome. We have a great, pretty diverse group. You know, a lot of college ministries philosophy is to support the students that are there that belong to that particular church or tradition. Um, and we do want to do that, of course. But I think part of our goal, and, and we talked about this with some of our students who are involved, um, is that we want to be a little more outward facing and in, inviting people to discussion and to the table. And that's what we've been doing. It's really been been lovely. So there's that. And then my son started school. He started kindergarten. So it's hard to believe that our, our oldest, Jude, who's five, is is going to school every day. He is loving it. And I get to sub some at his school, which has been really fun. So I already have had two or three days of doing that, which is great. So, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're just staying really busy. I love it. Yeah, it's crazy. Jude's off to school. I know. I know. It's like, I'm old. <laughs> You're not that old. That's true. I'm not as old as you are anyways. Right, exactly. Well, well, we, uh, in our last episode, so long, it feels like it was a long time ago that we recorded and yeah. everything, but we talked about the seven deadly sins or the seven capital sins, as Hugh of St. Victor calls them. And, um, and so we're going to zoom in on one of those sins today, which is the sin of acedia or the vice of acedia. Um, and uh, and and just by way of preface, we should say that 
a book that is very influential, at least in terms of whatever I'm going to say in this episode, is John Charles Nault's um, The Noonday Devil, um, which is all about Acedia, uh, Acedia, the unnamed evil of our times. It's an excellent book. It's definitely something you should read. And my favorite thing about the cover is that there's a quote on it, and it looks like it's just a blurb for the book, but it's actually just an Evagrius of Pontus quote. <laughs> it great. totally looks like it's a like it's a blurb from some you know contemporary person commending the book, but then you look at it and it's just a quote from Evagrius. I think he but, would have good things to say about it, though. Oh, he certainly would. I yes. think he would endorse it heartily. He would. He would absolutely. Um, so it's a it's a great resource. And so if what we say today kind of piques your interest in this topic, or or you feel like this is something you need to explore a little bit more, then maybe start with that book. Um, the Noonday Devil. And and that also functions as sort of a footnote for the whole episode whenever we say something. If you have read the book, you say, that sounds really familiar. It, yeah, it came from uh, Noonday Devil. So, so um, we talked last week about, or last episode, about vices and, and these seven deadly sins. Um, and vices, like virtues, are what we call habits of the soul, habits of the soul. They are the thing towards which we orient ourselves through repetitive actions. You know, so if you want to have good hygiene, you start to brush your teeth twice a day at least and take a shower once a day and do all those things, right? And the more you do them, the more, you know, when we see someone who does those things, we say, wow, he's got really good hygiene. Um, and so the virtue is developed through repetitious actions. And, and similarly, vices are built, are, are built through repetitious actions. So virtues are those habits of the soul that orient us towards the good. And vices are those habits that disorient us away from the good. They turn us away from the good. They, they make us pursue lower things as if they were an ultimate end. Yeah, and, and I think one of the interesting things about this and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode um but when we think about these sort of patterns of behavior it's easy to assume that say any of the particular vices um are like you know say mortal sins in themselves um but they're not they're the sort of pattern the orientation of the life that moves moves us towards a mortal sin and the opposite of that is actually very true with the virtues as well. They're patterns of our life, patterns of our behavior that move us towards good, righteous, holy actions and dispositions. And so sort of peeling back the sort of layers of the onion in the human person to sort of get at what are the things I'm doing that are leading me down a particular path? What are the patterns in my life that are maybe resulting in me being angry? Mm -hmm that then makes me fall into wrath or speaking badly to my spouse or, or whatever the, the, the situation may be. And as you pull those layers back, uh, you, you sort of try to start implementing new patterns of behavior, um, which take repetition, which take cons you know, concerted effort of the will to, to realize. Um, and when it comes to particular vices, I think um, they're all sort of Im impactful, but there are kind of big vices. They're, they're kind of ones that encapsulate a lot of things or have a lot of different branches kind of coming from that main root. Um, pride is definitely one of them. 
Uh, I think anger is one of them. And I think what we're going to talk about today with acedia is another one yeah. um, where it's, it's, it's sort of not that they're, they're not kind of all equal in their badness in a sense. Um, but that, that there are some that are a bit more capital than others, if that makes sense. Uh, oh, but absolutely, but it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of self knowledge and self reflection to be able to identify and uh, combat these particular vices in our lives. So it takes honesty, it takes critical examination. Uh, and I think this one specifically with acedia takes a lot of critical examination. I think that's one of the things I appreciate about this approach that is patristic and medieval up to virtue and vice. It feels like the way that we live as modern people, not often thinking about virtues and vices, at least not not much, is a very haphazard way of organizing our lives. Whereas this encourages us to both A, be reflective, but also B, uh, be proactive. Um, you know, if you want to be a better husband by being a better listener, I think a, a virtue ethic kind of helps you do that. You know, you say, okay, these are the practices I'm going to engage in that make me a better listener. Um, and so it becomes actually in a way very practical, very pragmatic, which I think is helpful uh, for people. So so we are talking about acedia today. And so acedia, it is a seven deadly sin. That's the, that's the genus to which it belongs. But its specific difference is a kind of laxity of soul or a lack of care for one's spiritual life and salvation resulting in restless boredom and apathy or sadness towards the good. Interestingly, one thing Nolt points out in his book is that the word was originally used for those who wouldn't bury their dead. There's a kind of carelessness. And if you think back to the beginning of last season when we read the book of Tobit, what is it that Tobit was doing? Tobit, sorry. What was it that Tobit was doing at the beginning of the book? He's burying the dead of the people of Israel after people wouldn't bury them. Yeah, there. Isn't that interesting, the connection between the burial of the dead and sort of care of one's spiritual life? You see this interestingly in church history in Alexandria, um, sort of during the time of St. Cyril. Uh, the, the, the only people in Alexandria who were willing to bury the dead happened to be, you know, these sort of, you know, pseudo-monk consecrated individuals in the church. Uh, and they were the ones going out into places, you know, riddled with disease and plague and things. And they were the ones burying the dead. And to them, that was they didn't see this like distinction between the action of like burying the dead for medical reasons like hygiene uh, and their own development in holiness and their own yeah. development in the spiritual life. They were part of the same reality. Yeah, yeah. I um for this reason today, I mean, even today you get kind of laissez-faire views about funerals, you know. Mm. And so when anyone ever comes to our church, whether they're a member or not, I am quick to say, absolutely, let's do the funeral here because it's the right thing to do. You know, we need to do it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's really, really important. Um, so I want to read a quote from Evagrius on his in from his book on the eight thoughts. 
and this is kind of his description of of how acedia assaults a person so he says the demon of acedia also called the noonday demon makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all and that the day seems to be 50 hours long then he compels the monk to look constantly towards the windows to jump out of the cell to watch the sun to see how far it is from the ninth hour to look this way and that that is for another monk to come socialize with further he insists in him a dislike for the place and for his state of life itself for manual labor and the idea that love has disappeared from among the brothers and there is no one to console him he leads him the devil or the demon of acedia leads him on to a desire for other places where he can easily find the wherewithal to meet his needs and pursue a trade that is easier and more productive he joins to these suggestions the memory of his close relations and of his former life so obviously evagrius is talking about this in terms of the monastic life but certainly many of these things we can import into our lives if if your vocation is to the priesthood or or other ordained ministry or um even just as a lay Christian, you might be able to see certain things in there that you can identify with. For example, Father, I know you and I have had private conversations where I have expressed a desire at times to, oh, I wish I had just gone into some other, you know, become a lawyer or something, you know, because then I wouldn't have to deal with X, Y, or Z. Yeah, we've all um, been there. Yeah, we've all been there. And uh, and so, but, you know, for us, that might feel like blowing off steam, but it actually can open a very dangerous door Um yeah, so we have to be very careful. But I think there are a couple of markers in the quote that we should point out. The first is that one of the effects of acedia is that time moves very slowly. We we want it to pass, right? Um, it, you know, we talk about this in such a dehumanizing way. We want to kill time, which is not really a good use of time. To kill time, when I kill time, I'm just doing whatever I want, right? I'm not putting the time to good use. Um, yeah, and... I think, too, one of the interesting things here is when time moves slowly, there's almost a paradox at play here, because when we th when we t uh, talk about people being impatient, they're sort of chomping at the bit for something to happen. Right. But when time moves slowly, it is the effect of impatience. That causes us to experience time slowly. We can't wait for the next thing. And so the intervening hours between now and when we can do X or Y feel like forever, right? Think about a, a kid at Christmas time. You know, when you're a child, the season of Advent and into Christmas feels like an eternity because you really want to get to Christmas and you want to open those gifts. You want to have the, the fun, the excitement of everything. And, you know, Christmas Eve feels like it lasts for days. Some of us have not outgrown that. No, <laughs> I still feel that way too sometimes. But you know the 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 effect of of that impatience, that desire for, uh, that unhealthy desire for the sort of results rather than the journey, makes us feel like we're on the journey for even longer. Mm -hmm. And so there's almost this like worked up frenetic energy in the person that results in time moving even slower, which is an interesting sort of 
paradoxical statement. Yep. One can, um, one can imagine why this would be such a problem for the monastics in the middle of the desert in the summer when the sun is, you know, in at the peak of its uh, course through the day and it's taking forever, you know, to, to just go down. But, you know, I mean, how often do we experience this? I mean, you're at work and it's two o'clock and you're checking the watch every five minutes because you want it to be five o'clock and you want to go home. And are you really getting much done when you're in that headspace? Probably not. Probably not the most productive day. So certainly we all can identify with this, even for those of us who are in cler uh, clergy. Like there are times we've, we started since our last meeting, we started doing a daily mass. And so every day, either me or the other priest of my parish are saying mass. And there are times when I'm serving and I'm kind of checking my watch saying, okay, this is, you know, it's the same as it was yesterday. Can we just hurry through the canon of the mass and let's get on with our day? Um, but that's not, that's not good. That's not good. Another thing. So the first problem is that acedia makes time move slowly. But the second thing is that, um, there's a kind of desire for distraction, a desire to change things up. And really what this is, is evidence of interior instability, right? So the monk who can't be by himself, he's looking for his friends. Maybe he'll come down the hall and I can make a quip to him and then he'll make a quip back to me and we'll start talking. That is a way of distracting oneself from the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And again, it's that kind of instability. It's like, I should be aimed at this, but I'm actually uh, wanting to do something over over there instead. Yeah, that sort of loss of intentional attention, mm -hmm. right? You lose that intentionality in the pursuit of the good or whatever you know, positive thing that you're moving towards. And then let's continue with the, the the example as a monk, you know, the pursuit of holiness, the growth in holiness um, and and union with God. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. It requires a lot, requires a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, we as human beings don't always like to do the hard work and don't always like to do the sacrificing. And so it's easy to say, well, you know, is an hour of, you know, going down the hall and chatting with brother so-and-so really going to affect things? No, it's going to be fine. And I'm just really tired and really worn out right now. So it would be really great if I just go do that. And then I'll come back refreshed. But then you kind of don't, right? Mm -hmm. Because that pattern begins to develop and you don't come back refreshed and you are even more you know, distracted and you lack the attention and the intentionality. Yeah. And again, you can find direct application to this in secular vocation as well. Like I remember being a teacher and having a planning period during the day, you know, and, and wanting, wanting to do anything else other than actually plan or grade, like take a walk around the halls. And, you know, one of the other teachers is, has a planning period at the same time. So, Hey, let's talk about our fantasy football teams or, you know, something like that, which is again, I mean, in the context of a secular vocation, I mean, this isn't, quite the same as neglecting prayer at the same time, you know, it is a clear way of distracting oneself and it is a sign of instability um, to, to do that because when we're, what, what we're doing is we're, we're not attending to the thing in front of us. 
we're attending to in our minds at least we're attending to something we would like to be in front of us rather than right. what's actually in front of us and that's the best way to be faithful to anything is to be faithful to what's in front of you so there's the perception that time moves slowly there's the desire for distraction there's also a dislike for manual labor that is isolated there. Um, I think at one point in the book, Nall talks about that when the monastics in the desert, they would they would weep baskets. And if you finished all the baskets, like you didn't have any more material left, and, but there was still time to, to be doing manual labor, you would unwind the baskets and then wind them back up again. Because the point was that you actually are working, you know? Um, I was actually, I had coffee recently with a Buddhist priest and he was telling me about how one of the things that they do in order to prepare for ordination is they have to sew their own robes. And he said it takes, it took him like over a year to do this. And so he started attending to that regularly. You know, um, he's sitting there visiting with friends. So he pulls his robe out and he starts sewing or, you know, he's riding the subway. He starts sewing, you know, he's always kind of attending to that but you could see where it would be very easy to procrastinate that because you kind of have a dislike oh i've already done that um for 10 minutes today or oh i've already you know i've poked my finger a couple times with the needle today so i don't really want to do it you know and so so one of the things nalt points out is that when we when we have this dislike for manual labor there's also often a corollary which is a concern for one's health and i think in the monastic context, this this can manifest itself in physical health, right? Oh, I'm I'm not I ha I'm fasting. We're in a season of fasting, and now I'm out here, you know, doing all this work in the hot sun. That's not good for me, and so I'm not going to do that. Or I'm, maybe I'll let up on my fasting or something like that, right? We negotiate in our own minds, kind of a, a a way to lax our our discipline. I think in modern times, though, we might use. And I think this could happen in a religious context or a secular context. We might use mental health maybe as a way of doing this. And I'm not at all saying that there aren't real mental health problems or that people shouldn't get help when they need it. I'm just saying sometimes people will use mental health as a way of not maybe doing what it is they're supposed to do. Like, oh, I can't handle, um, I you know, I have to cut this person out of my life because it's not good for my mental health. Well, maybe, but that should be a really radical step and sometimes people get a little trigger happy right and so it may be oh well i'm not going to pray the daily office today because i just need a i need a mental health day or something like that and um you know maybe you actually need to pray the office yeah it's 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 interesting when you think about it in terms of action and and i think we can kind of just lump manual labor into the into to sort of action in general right doing and when you are doing something sometimes the end result of what you're doing is not the actual goal right does the monk need you know 40 baskets Maybe they're going to sell the baskets, which helps then fund the monastery and buy food and do all those sorts of things. That's great. That's an that's that's not the end goal of weaving the basket. That's a different goal, but it's related to it. And so, I think sometimes we miss the fact that doing working um, in you know sort of any capacity that this this applies to, right? I mean, this could be woodworking. This could be 
building a table. This could be doing work in your garden. This could be doing all sorts of things uh, in addition to like housework or the things that need to get done. For the human person, having a clean lawn or well-pruned flowers, those are nice things to have. But in a lot of ways, I think we view them as the end goal. When in reality, we should be viewing the action itself as helping teach us something particular about ourselves. And so, yeah, it might be good to have the basket. It might be good to, to, to chop down that tree. But that's not its ultimate good. Its ultimate good is to teach us discipline. It's also there to teach us uh, lessons about ourselves. It's amazing when you're doing work, when you're doing something manual, the amount of personal reflection that takes place while you're doing that thing. Like go, go spend a couple hours outside working in your garden and it's just you, you know, maybe, maybe for, for this time, don't listen to that podcast. Don't listen to music. Just sort of be as long as it's not this podcast, right? You can listen to this podcast, of course. Um, but you can be with yourself and your work and it'll, you it's interesting how reflective you become. It's interesting how much you begin to think about things. You begin to think about yourself. You begin to think about your motivations. You become very, very reflective. And sometimes that's a very unsettling place to be. And so it's easy to then seek the distraction of listening to music or something else because it means you don't have to be as reflective. And I don't think that's an accident in the act of doing, in the act of working. I think that is something that the monastic fathers really understood. Uh, you look at the rule of St. Benedict, famous aura at labora, prayer and work. Those two things aren't different. They're not distinct. They're the same reality. It's just sort of manifested differently. When we are working with our bodies, when we're sweating, when we're working hard, it's amazing what begins to take place in the human person. Because all prayer is, is the elevation of the mind to God, which work can actually be a really healthy avenue for doing that and kind of a different mode of the same thing, right? I mean, you know, you, you we do our offices. That's really important. But when we actually go to work and we lift our minds to God while we're working, then we're really becoming that living sacrifice that Paul talks about in Romans. You know, we're offering our whole selves, even even our working lives to him another effect of acedia is the from that quote is that we begin to desire other places and vocations which might cause us to neglect our rule um you know so again um you know this is this is when the priest says i should maybe i'll just go back to law school instead of living out my vocation or maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll go just be a teacher and not really worry about the priest thing or whatever. Um, and, you know, this is this is a really sad thing when it happens because one is kind of neglecting their own telos. And they're filling it with lesser things. I mean, what God has called you to do is the most important thing for you to do. And so you're filling it with the lesser things. But we also see this in other ways, not just in our working lives. Um, 
I, I posted in our Sacramentalist Facebook group about this a little while ago that, you know, when St. Benedict was around, you had a whole class of monks called the Gyrovags who were going from monastery to monastery, kind of always chasing something new, never really living under a, uh, under one discipline for very long. And they would always be shifting back and forth. But we see that today. I mean, I see that in, in parish life. And I don't know if you saw this, Father, when you were in in a parish regularly, but you, you get people who come and they're really excited because this is something new to them. And they visit and they, you know, ask you a ton of questions and they take up a ton of your time and they really are excited. And then, you know, three months later, they're at a Roman Catholic church, an Eastern Orthodox church, a Lutheran church, a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church. And, and even within Anglicanism, you see this, right? You see people who are Anglo-Catholic one month and then the next month they're reformed. Yeah. Like they have, maybe they don't leave the tradition of Anglicanism, but they are, are wanting a variety of kinds of Anglicanism, you know, and, and what happens when we do this, it, you know, and I'm not saying we shouldn't wrestle with the truth. I mean, we should, um, people know I didn't, I wasn't always Anglican. I kind of came into it, you know, so there was a journeying that, that took place, but it's also possible to use that kind of seeking as an excuse to not really engage on a deeper level with the tradition that you are in. And so on one hand, you know, of course, I'll always talk to people about why I'm an Anglo-Catholic and why I think that this tradition has so much good and truth and, and beauty in it. At the same time, you know, I kind of want to tell people the best tradition is the one that you'll be planted in. So, you know, if you need to be a Presbyterian, go be a Presbyterian. If you can be a good one. I mean, you know, if it, I'd rather you do that than be a bad Anglo-Catholic, you know, I don't know. But um, anyway, so we, we have to be careful that that these desires for other places and vocations, they, it, it's that insidious lie uh, that sin tells us often, which is that if you do it, you'll be happy but it never actually happens. Yeah, there's a there's a waywardness to that. You know, being being moved by shifting winds, blown and tossed by the winds, St. James says, yeah. Exactly. That that ultimately sometimes fixedness can be a bad thing, right? We can acknowledge that. Sometimes it's not the place you need to be. And your sort of stubborn insistence because of fear of change or, uh, you know, whatever else is causing it is preventing you from stepping out and pursuing the truth. That's a bad thing. We're not talking about that. But this idea that, you know, oh, well, if I if I go do this, like, oh, it's interesting. Uh, and then then after a couple months, I'm going to go do this over here with this thing or I'm going to go to this church. And then once it gets tough, once things are kind of getting close to requiring something of me that I'm not willing to to sort of let go of, oh, then it's time to move on or a particular commitment is required of me. Now it's time to move on. And then I'm going to go to this other place because it'll make me happy. Or I like the aesthetic of this other place. Um, it's It's ultimately very dislocating and it's very dangerous to the human soul because we are built to be in a particular place. We're built to live uh, in a particular place. 
And, you know, I, I think in some circles this gets uh, overdone and I'm going to, I'm going to use some buzzwords here. So uh, get ready. Um, but we really are built to be within a community and being in a community and having community is not simply there because I like the people that are there and they make me happy. Being in a community is sharing obligations, responsibilities, and intentionalities with other people. If you look at the root of that particular word, if you go back and look into the you know history of that word in the Comitatus in Anglo-Saxon England, right? The community. This is a brotherhood of you know of sworn people to each other with obligations, responsibilities, provision uh, that takes place. So it's a very deep level of commitment that we desire, and when we are presented with that, just like we talked about a second ago, when we're presented with ourselves and what's required of ourselves and what maybe we're deficient in or you know, whatever through self-reflection, we come face to face with something. We come face to face with something that requires us to move, to be better, to do something. And then we don't wanna do it. And so we look immediately for a distraction. We look immediately to change, to go somewhere else, to do something else. And that's, it's like a false sense of activity, right? Cause it's acedia, it's ultimately this malaise it's this non-action, it's this non-entity that's tricking us into thinking we're, we are doing an action. Yep. I think a good test case, like in, at least in the, in the context of priests, is why are, you know, so the question might come up, well, are you saying like a priest has to stay at the church that they're at forever? And of course not, right? There are times when it's pretty clear a priest should leave. There are times when probably he should stay. But how do you know? And I mean, I think at least I don't know that we can maybe come up with criteria for when you know you need to leave. But I do think that there are questions you could ask yourself to figure out whether you're being motivated by a real sense of I should go or or by something like acedia. Mm. You know, um, you don't have to stay at a parish forever. But do you love the parish that you're at? You know, because if you don't love the parish you're at now, are you ever going to love a parish? Right. Because there's no perfect parish. So I'm told. Um, and so 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 you're always going to have warts and messiness and things to deal with. And the question is, can you love that parish in spite of all that? Or are, are you always going to find things to pick about? That will then, you know, cause you to move on to the next one and, and it'll be great until you find things there to pick at you know and so um yeah so it's it's important to grow where you're planted that doesn't mean you you don't get transplanted every so often but it means maybe letting god be a little more clear about when those times are um the grass is not always greener rarely rarely is the grass ever actually greener so um, the final thing, so we talked about perception of the, uh, that time moves slowly, the desire for distraction, the dislike of manual labor and the concern for, for health, the desire for other places and vocations. And finally, um, the, the, the last thing that Evagrius mentioned in that quote is that um, the demon of acedia often brings us memories of our former life, memory of our former life. So obviously in the context of the monk, you know, you might bring up the time when before they were monks. For those of us in um, in the priesthood, it might be remembering the times when you weren't a priest and you had more freedom to do certain things or in other states of life. Like 
if you're married, you know, it may be the the memory of when you weren't married and you were able to date around or, you know, things like that. And so we have to guard against those memories because it's the same temptation that I was talking about earlier, that temptation to move somewhere new and everything will be great, but it doesn't deliver. It's the same thing, but in reverse, it's looking back at things in your life and saying, that was really great when you could do X, Y, or Z and not have to worry about it. But was that really great? Like, I mean, if you actually with, with look at that, those events through the truth, you know, of course those weren't satisfying or good for you or enjoyable really. But and the, they may have been good at the time. Right. Like a, a particular state of life that you were in, say, sure. before you were married may have been the right state of life for you to be in then. But if you went back the person you are now to that moment, it would not be good for you anymore. Right. Right. It's about remembering who you are. And so when you think about who you were, there can be a kind of insidious lie that takes place because you're not the same person you were then if you're a priest if you're married you know whatever whatever it is um, and so yeah we have to be very careful that memory nostalgia doesn't kind of gum us up so that we can't move forward we only want to move backwards it's the same problem right in in the book of genesis like they weren't to go east they weren't to go towards eden they were supposed to go forward right out of the garden to take yeah. that mode of being with them Right. Into the world. Exactly. A exactly. purpose. A telos. So we can appreciate the past. Without the past, you wouldn't be where you are today. But it's not the same thing. You, you don't want to go back to the past. Now, I think it's important to point out Thomas Aquinas gives us two definitions of acedia in his writing that I think just help fill out the concept a little bit more. So Evagrius's description, I think, is really thorough and really good. And there are tons of parallels to modern ways of being. But I think Thomas's definition is very definitions are very succinct and helpful. So his first definition is that acedia is a sadness about spiritual good. It's a sadness about spiritual good. It's saying, "Oh, I have to pray the daily office today." No, you get to pray the daily office today. It's a it's an exciting thing. Um, and so this this Nalt says is a sin against the joy that springs from charity. When we really love something, we have a joy. You know, I get a joy. I got to, to drop my son off at school this morning and pick him up uh, right before lunch after his half day was over. And there was a great joy that I got to do that. Was it the most convenient thing? No, not really. I mean, I had to pack up my work that I was doing, which was partly planning this episode and drive to the school and wait for him to come out and all that. But it was such a joy to get to see him and say, hey, how was your day? What did you do? You know? Because I love him, the effect of engaging in that action was joy. But when we are sad about a spiritual good, we are, even if we do the action, we're closing ourselves off from the joy that proceeds from it. Hmm. So it's, it's, you know, is it good to do the daily office even when you don't feel like it? Absolutely. But when you don't feel like it and you do it, you know, kind of dragging your feet the whole time and always checking your watch to see if what time it is or checking your phone or whatever, then you are missing the joy of doing the daily office. And the same is true of mass or, or any other liturgical rite that you might be participating in. So I think that first definition is really helpful. Sadness about a spiritual good. 
A second definition that Aquinas offers is that acedia is disgust with activity. It's sluggishness that prevents us from acting. This is when the alarm goes off and you are wanting to stay in bed, even though there's a lot you have to do. Yeah, I like I like thinking I, I mentioned this in the last episode, you know, the way kind of Chaucer refers to this as like a peevishness. Yeah. Peevish. You know, you're annoyed. You're like, why is that happening? Why do I have to go do the thing? I don't want to do that. Yep. You're just and you get you get crabby about it. You get annoyed and peevish and testy about I have to go do that thing. Which yep. I mean, let's let's be, you know, very frank here. I mean, this we are talking about monks and things like that, but that this this applies to every single human person, right? We all experience this. Um and to the to the degree that you're capable of recognizing something as a spiritual good, it's it's still taking place, right? Going and um, you know working so that you can provide for your family and all these sorts of things. I think that's ultimately a spiritual good in itself. Like, and you don't want to go do it, and you're annoyed that you have to do it. I mean, that's what this is. That's a sedia. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it it's not just that we're thinking about these sort of lofty ideals of the of the monastic life or or the the you know lofty ideals of the the holiness of the priesthood or something like that um you know i i often feel this way about certain things associated with ministry that i don't particularly love doing right and this is pretty common right i don't love doing administrative stuff I don't love sitting on my computer typing out this insert or making this calendar or making sure that the bank information is up to date or the insurance policy is where it needs to be or whatever. I don't like doing those things. I'll put it off. I'll procrastinate it. And then I'll get annoyed when it comes to time, you know, the, the time comes around where it's like, well, I really have to sit down and do this. Like, oh, I don't want to do that. And you say to yourself, you know, you're like, oh, well, I mean, it's not, I'm not putting off, like, I, I'm not putting off going to mass or doing something like that. I'm fine. It's not actually causing an issue. You know, I'm not neglecting pastoral visits or the liturgies of the church or anything like that. It's like, mm, yeah, but you kind of, I mean, it's, it's still a spiritual good insofar as it assists you and allows you to be able to realize your pastoral ministry and the liturgical life of the church and the community that's built around the church and all those sorts of things. It's easy to lie to ourselves and say, like, it's, this is just a mundane task yep. that I'm annoyed that I have to do. I, I do this most regularly. So, I'll, you know, I, I, I keep a to-do list and I have sort of a weekly to-do list and I like to try, I mean, ideally I'd go to the gym or do some sort of exercise three or four times a week. But in the morning when I actually wake up and I get to that on the to-do list, you know, I pray the daily office and then, okay, it's time to go to the gym. Man, there's so much else I could be doing at this point, you know, than go to the gym or take a walk. But again, by putting it off, I'm, I'm, it's a kind of disgust with activity. It's not even, I mean, I'd be fine doing anything else, you know, that would require me to sit down at my desk, you know, read a book or write something or whatever. But 
to actually get up and get in the car and drive to the gym and then go and work. I, you know, it sounds so terrible at this moment in time. And then, you know, later in the day, I go, man, I can't wait to go to the gym tomorrow, at least, you know, <laughs> and that repeats the whole cycle the next day. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have to be be careful. Sadness about spiritual good and disgust with activity. Two sides of the same coin or, or maybe two ways of saying something very similar. But I think those definitions really help us fill out our concept of acedia a little more. Now, of course, uh, acedia wasn't something that just impacted monks a long time ago. And I think we've tried to do a good job of saying, no, this can affect you no matter what state of life you're in, whether you're a married person or a professional or a priest or anything, it can still apply. But it's very prevalent today. And I think it's underdiagnosed. You know, we um, some of this and, and we've I, I, this is a question that's come up when we've had um, Scott Harrower on the podcast a couple times because he does a lot of work on the intersection of trauma and faith and, and the church community's role in helping people who have experienced traumas. And, you know, one of the questions I think I've asked him twice now is like, what is the relationship between pastor and therapist? And I think as pastors, sometimes we've become a little reticent to diagnose a CDL, like we might refer out because some of those, uh, some of those impacts of acedia might be things like loss of meaning or despair or instability. And so we think, oh, well, there's sort of a psychological explanation for those things. So you need to go see a, a therapist and they'll help you. And that's true. It may be that, that there's some aspect of therapy that would help. I'm not at all saying that the priest should replace the therapist, but that we should maybe be a little more bold about diagnosing acedia and saying, no, this really is a concern that that a lot of people do have today. So it can be a complicated relationship and we do want to respect the work that therapists do. But at the same time, like we need to be able to speak forthrightly with parishioners about this for sure. Yeah. And with mental health issues, you know, I'm a massive advocate for collaborative care mm -hmm. um, that the, the pastor and the mental health care professional are really ultimately working for the same goal, which is the good of the human person, right? Human flourishing. And I think it's important to note that acedia and let's say depression are not the same things. Uh, they may share some similarities and they may have similar results, um, but there really is a thing out there that is depression and it may be chemical. It may need the intervention of a mental health care professional and the church should be helping and providing that access. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in my perfect world, looking into the, the future, I, I would absolutely love to have, um, you know, in all of our churches, you know, a, a therapist, a, a counselor, a mental health care professional that's on staff at the at the church that maybe has their office at the church building, something like that, where people can have access to that care, where it's not prohibitive in terms of cost, it's not prohibitive in terms of what kind of insurance they have or, or what have you, um, but that it's part of what it means to, to, or to experience the community of the church. Um, and, you know, as, as pastors, you know, I think, if we are really looking at this and thinking about this in terms of collaborative care, the priest is, you know, a, in a sense, a spiritual doctor, right? Um, there, there's diagnosis that goes on. There's treatment plans. There's 
activities that help us treat underlying spiritual causes. Uh, recourse to, to, to regular confession. And this is what should be happening inside the confessional is, you know, treatment plans, mm-hmm. right? Here's the medication, right? Here's here's the, the doctor's visit. This is what's going on, identifying it, um, you know, some sort of, you know, immediate intervention through absolution and reconciliation. But then also, you know, here's some pastoral counseling. Here's recourse to this particular pattern to help you deal with this going into the future. And I didn't. I don't know if it's if it's priests lacking the the forthrightness to sort of do that with their parishioners, or if it's parishioners not allowing priests to pastor them. Right, that um, is a huge problem too. Absolutely, that's both of those exist. Yeah, um, and you know they're very willing to go to the doctor and say, "Well, I've got this thing over here." Doctor says, "Well, yeah, it's your kidney. You got to take this medication." Okay, I'll take that medication. Then they take the medication, they start feeling better, and they're like, "Oh, this is great." Um, but then when it comes to the church, it's like, oh, all right, father. Yeah. Like I went to confession. It's over. Like, meh. you know, I come to church, I give my money. I'm there at the barbecue or I'm, you know, I, I put together the chairs last week on the work day. Like oh, that's, that's like, don't, don't step too far into my life. Right. Don't bother. Don't be a bother. And I think ultimately what that does is that it allows particular vices to become sort of endemic and, you know, you're not really treating the problem. I mean, sometimes we're doing what we can, right? Um, But people have to let us pastor them. Symptom management is not treatment. Right. That's that, that might be the first step. But that's right. not the end goal, right? <laughs> right. Right. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself when you're going to confession, why do I have to keep coming back here and saying exactly. the same things? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. Now, um, so there's certainly this aspect of sort of pastoral relationships to parishioners and to the, the field of therapy. But there's also, I think, another reason why people haven't really heard the term acedia or why we don't really use that language very often in the church today and that is all because of William of Ockham where most bad things come from um and uh William of Ockham of course was a, a medieval scholastic kind of high scholastic and um you know for most of church history the concept of freedom was taken to mean the ability to choose the good in the person. So you are free when you could choose the good. And there's a kind of art to that. You know, it's not purely a scientific right, wrong. It's there's also a kind of how is it good? How do I do what's good? So there really it is a freeing thing to be able to to do that. Occam came along and popularized the idea of a of a liberty of indifference, which makes liberty basically the equivalent of exertion of will. So the example I always use is like for William Wacom and, and someone who kind of thinks like this, the fact that there's 20 kinds of bread at the grocery store makes you more free than if there was only 15 kinds of bread at the grocery store. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, that's probably too many kinds of bread at the grocery store. 
but that's that's his shift is that that freedom exists before the act of the will whereas in the classical tradition freedom and will were sort of in lockstep with each other aiming towards an objective so for occam because of that because the will comes first you have to ask like why should i do anything and the answer comes purely from the law right the law takes on this this kind of external it's called um extrinsicism you know the, the law takes on this external significance because it tells you what's good something is good because the law tells you it's good it's not good because in and of itself it's good and the law points you to that good but rather the law made it good by saying do this and that is well actually it fails the euthyphro dilemma right i mean in terms of being arbitrary it's totally arbitrary and it paves the way for the sort of deontological ethic of someone like kant you know that 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 that, that, that just doing your duty is is what's ethical so you know you um as a, as a father you should make sure your child is picked up from school you don't pick them up because you love them yeah and it it I think what this does, um, and listeners, if you are interested in sort of more about this, we did kind of talk about this a little bit in yeah. our episodes on Catholic mora um, morality, yeah. moral theology with um, Father Pinker's book uh, on Catholic moral theology. It's a two-part episode, if I remember correctly. And we talk about the sort of maturity of uh, the human person in choosing moral goods and in morality and what Occam is really doing is he's actually going to the least mature stage of the human person and isolating the good as an external force right so when you're a kid your parents say don't touch the stove because it's hot you don't know why the stove is hot you're in a in a in a place of maturity where you listen to what your parents have to say and you say, you know, okay, I'm not going to touch the stove because it's hot. My parents said it's hot. And then the next kind of stage of moral maturity is understanding the interplay between my parents telling me this is hot because they want my good. They don't want me to be hurt. And through experience that I've gained, hot things hurt you if they're too hot. And I'm starting to understand that there's this sort of internal reality to the moral life, but there's also this external sort of thing placed on me by an authority. And so I'm kind of in between those two places. I'm beginning to internalize the moral law. And then moral maturity, when you kind of get into the adulthood of your moral life, uh, at whatever stage that is, you begin, you then internalize the law and you begin to understand what the good is, know the good, recognize the good, you have freedom. And Occam is basically saying, just be children, be infants. Be infants with the moral law because ultimately it's easier. Mm -hmm. It's simpler that way if the external thing just tells you it's good and then you do it. And it kind of breaks you because ultimately if that's the case, if the, if the external law is what dictates a good, first you're at the whim of the law. The law could be the law could be objectively unjust, but tell you something is good. 
And then if you are at the, the sort of will of the law, then you as a human person never have to develop the patterns of behavior that are required of you in the moral life, that are required of you to be free. And so when you're presented with things in yourself or in the world that are challenging or difficult, it becomes very difficult. I mean, it becomes very hard, right? Like when you are presented with those challenges, it's easier to seek something else. It's easier to go to another authority. It's easier to go to do a different church that requires something different of me. And then what you're doing is you're actually like propping up and continuing to live into this particular vice of acedia. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Occam, that why Occam's work is so sort of insidious on this point is that if a thing, if goodness isn't intrinsic, then acedia as sort of disgust or, or, or sort of as aversion to the good doesn't really make any sense anymore. So it's like, it's not a helpful term or a helpful idea because what's good is just what the law says. And so I just do what the law, the, the point is in the obedience, not in the sort of whole process of becoming human. And this really, in my mind, is so antithetical to St. Paul, Romans 13, the law of love, um, and, and his other work kind of about becoming, I think, about becoming human. And I think about the teachings of our Lord that, you know, yeah, the law says don't, don't murder, and that's true, but don't even get angry in your heart at your brother. Because that violates not just the law, but the spirit of the law, which is we begin to approach interior realities when we talk about that. Right. That's in, that's the maturity in the in the moral life. It's interiorizing the law. Yes. Not just making it an external reality. Yes. Yes. So perhaps we could come to a close here and and say some things that you can do if you think that you have a cedia. And of course, the first thing we'd probably say is go to confession and talk to your priest, but some other practices that you could do. Um, the first thing that, that many of the fathers say is, um, and we talked about this with Father Borsma back when we had him on spiritual reading, um, is to, to have tears, to have real compunction over your sin. Because when we do that, it means we are really seeing the good. And our tears aren't directed at the good, quite the opposite. Our tears are, are directed at our failure to obtain the good or to grasp the good fully. And so that begins, I think, a process of, of riding the ship. Missed opportunities. Like I said, it's little things, you know. I mean, there are days where I'm distracted, like I'm tempted to look at my phone during the office at times, you know. And, you know, I could, I could always rest in the fact that, yeah, I, I said the office. But... I can mourn the fact that I didn't get the fullness of it because I was distracted. So actual, actual compunction, actual contrition is a good thing to have to fight acedia. Yeah. And, and I think too, um, we talked about working and praying and, you know, that sort of idea of perseverance is important to, to sort of, do the thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, if you don't feel like doing it, you just need to do it. Begin small steps. Take the steps in the right direction. You know, I think people think that the spiritual life is these grand 
things where we make these leaps and bounds in development and growth, and they miss the fact that development, growth, and holiness, and in the spiritual life is small, consistent things. Yep. Right? Uh, and that, and that kind of goes to the other point, uh, the next point of attending to small things. Take the time to do the small things. And do them well. I think right. it's a good thing too. Do them with yeah. excellence, not just do them, but do them with excellence. It's like what Martin Thornton says, you know, sometimes prayer is like cleaning your car. It's not the most exciting thing. You just do it because you have to. And that's, there's something about that that's good. But as you continue to do it, the idea is that, again, there's that change that directs you towards, towards really kind of an inside out, sort of an interior emphasis on on the activity and so um hopefully you know those days where it's not the most exciting thing will pass it's almost like uh like getting a runner's high you know like yep. you have to run and you have to put up with a lot but then you reach this point where it actually feels good and so prayer i think can be kind of similar you have to push through and until you reach a certain plane where it becomes enjoyable and in terms of, of, of the small things and doing them well, simple things and doing them well are, are an important aspect to this. And I yeah, think we have a basket. Yeah. Like you can, you can do simple things that will help you grow in the spiritual life. They don't have to be these massive onerous tasks. Right. Right. We, we're used to that. Right. We, we're, we're used to the idea of the hero going on the grand quest and having to endure these horrible things. What that is, is that's the condensing of the entire human experience into a narrative tale. And you have to understand that when you stretch that out over the length of your life, it's the small things that add up. It's the simple things that lead us towards good that then kind of set the color and tenor of our life. And so don't, don't despair, do simple things, right? Like small, simple things. Say are, the Angelus at noon, you know, I mean, it takes two minutes. That's a yeah, good thing to do. Yeah. And that's not, you're not, you're not like giving up, right? You're not less good. You're not weak or anything like that by doing small, simple things. What you are is you're actually, forming good habits and patterns of life that show you you can be consistent. Mm -hmm. Another thing you can do is uh, just contradict the devil when he tells you something. Just say no. Actually, the opposite is true. You know, you'll be happier if you leave that church and go to this church because they won't put on, put, so they don't have the same expectations of you. Well, no, that would be bad for me if I do that. I'm not going to do that. Being very clear and direct is good. You know, I was watching um, the Pope's Exorcist recently, yeah. which was a, actually a really enjoyable film, I thought, and um, and had some really good theology in it. And uh, that's something he says, you know, when you're in the middle of an exorcism, don't reason, don't try and talk with the devil. You know, But when the devil would say something, they would say, they would contradict, no, you know, that's wrong. And so, but rather than debate, well, maybe it would be better if I do this, or maybe it would be better. No, no, it won't be better. <laughs> so being very direct is good. Um, my favorite, I mean, you know, our feelings about Martin Luther are, are probably known to most people, but, you know, he's got that one quote where, like, when the devil tempts you to be sort of self-righteous or, or, um, or worry about really little things, drink a little extra and tell the devil, I, I will drink because you told me not to. <laughs> 
So gotta love it. Um, finally, finally, the most important, one of the other important things we can do is uh, memento mori. Memento mori. Remember that you will die. And this brings significance to the present when we do that, right? Um, so if I just conceive of my life as a series of unconnected moments that don't go anywhere, then the present moment is whatever I want it to be. It's chaotic. It There's no real purpose to it. But if I understand my goal is the beatific vision, and if I understand my life as a journey to get to that goal, then the present moment becomes the most significant moment. It's like in Great Divorce when um, when Lewis's character is in heaven and he's talking to George MacDonald and he goes, well, will the people who reject God be given another chance? And MacDonald says, all moments are right now. And that's true of us right now. And one thing that, that uh, Nalt talks about in the book is this idea of pusillanimity versus magnanimity. Pusillanimity is smallness of soul. It's when we sell ourselves short. It's when we say, oh, life is really not that important or there's, you know, I'm not really doing anything that important. I'm just a lay person. I'm just a parish priest. I'm just whatever. But magnanimity is realizing the greatness to which we are called, our vocation, which is the beatific vision ultimately. And so we remember that we will die, that we only have a finite life. And so the moment that we feel drags on for forever goes from being a, an, an, an intolerable burden to an opportunity for us to progress towards holiness. Just by way of demonstration, I have this rosary here too. It's uh, skulls. That's your memento. That's my Mori memento rosary. Mori rosary. Yes, I love it. That's very metal of you. It is very metal. <laughs> also very seasonally appropriate. Oh, yeah. Oh, it comes out every Lent. So, yes. So, compunction, perseverance in ora et labora, attending to the small things with excellence, contradicting the devil, and memento mori. Those are five things that you can do if you ever feel like you're being assaulted by acedia. Um, and, of course, also go to confession and talk to your priest. Absolutely. Well... This was a fun conversation. Do you think we solved all the problems? I think we solved all the problems. No one will ever struggle with the CD ever again. Ah, so that's perfect. good to know. Especially us, because we never struggle with the CD. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so anyways, well, we can uh, distract ourselves by uh, talking about our what we're into. So Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Well, since, uh, you know, it's... September, which means obviously it's close to Halloween. <laughs> um, yeah, I just uh, I like a good I like a good horror movie, you yeah. know, uh, or or a horror show. And so I've I've been recently. Um, Margaret Ann and I have been watching uh, The Haunting at Hill House again, uh, which was actually filmed just down the street from us. Um, I remember when it was being filmed, I actually went out and watched some of the stuff they were doing. It's pretty cool. Um, the the uh, uh, funeral home that's in the show, uh, if you wa if you have watched it, um, that's actually a, a, an inn, uh, the Whitlock Inn, which is just down the street from us. Um, beautiful old home. 
but the show's great, and uh, I'm a real big fan of the Flaniverse, um, which is the the writer and and director Mike Flanagan. He uh, he's done The Haunting at Hill House, Haunting at Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, The Midnight Club, and you should have a new one coming out soon. It's going to be a version of the 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 fall of the house of usher which i'm very excited about um but it, yeah fun show and he does some really interesting things in terms of religious reference um in in some of his shows that it's it's really interesting uh, he's one of those directors where you can tell was raised in the church um and definitely knows what he's talking about not entirely sure he believes anymore about those things but he definitely takes them seriously, which I think is an interesting trait to have. Uh, but yeah, it's a fun, uh, spooky, spooky season sort of thing to watch. Uh, but Father Wes, what are you? What are you into? What have you been into? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I've been so things have been moving along so quickly that it's been hard to uh, hard to really do a ton of fun things. But I guess one thing I would say. Um, is football, but I don't mean American football, which I'm pretty sure I've said a couple times. I mean um, actual football, um, English That's football. Right. That's right. Um, I football. am. I well, this would have made more sense if we had recorded on our original date because um, we were supposed to record last Monday, and I I had a pastoral emergency that I had to take care of. I am a West Ham United supporter. And we drew the first match of the season and then we won the next two and I was really excited. And then we lost this past Saturday to Man City, unfortunately. So I, you know, but I'm still into it because we're still playing well and it's it's so fun to watch. I got to go to my first English Premier League game here in Washington, D.C. over at FedEx Field, which isn't in D.C., it's in Maryland. Um, but Chelsea was playing uh, Fulham. And one of the parishioners at our church is a big Chelsea supporter, so he he bought tickets and invited me to go with him. I don't like Chelsea either, but you know, it was it was a really fun experience. So I've just oh, been really great. into that and watching the beautiful game uh, lately. It's just a, a very artful sport, and I I really have come to love it. I'll uh, I'll pray for your parishioner that he would come to enlightenment. And he would really, he would really choose the good. Well, uh, which is not Chelsea. Well, being a Chelsea um, fan is its own. Uh, sort of punishment these days small victories small small joys um, that's right it's purgatory <laughs> but yeah chelsea mm, no thank you no no come on you irons so anyway well, and the 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 nice thing i mean it wasn't nice for you as a west ham supporter um but i was i was uniquely cheering for west ham playing city because you know if city lost that would have been it would have been fantastic. Fantastic. Now, Father, you have to tell everybody who you support. I am a Tottenham Hotspur fan. Don't shake your head at me. At least it's, it's not Liverpool or something worse. That's true. Or Arsenal or something like that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Fair. 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 Well, hey, that's the, the Spurs. We've had we've had our ups and downs. That's true. We, we we've been through it. That's true. I can appreciate the Spurs more more than some of the other teams that a lot of people like. So, that's true. Well. This has been the Sacramentalist Talking Soccer. <laughs> yeah, join us again next uh, next week where we have a full episode on uh, just English talking football. soccer. <laughs> well, talking football with the Sacramentalists. Well, it is a British thing to do. 
you know, it would definitely help with our Anglophile audience probably. Yeah. So, all right. Very good. Well, listeners, thank you so much for, uh, for engaging in conversation with us. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also like and subscribe to us on YouTube and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And also, if you're interested, you can join the communion of Patreon Saints for $5 a month for access to our Discord, other special events that we do, um, and all that throughout the year. So, Father Creighton, would you close us out in prayer, uh, the Collect for the Spirit of Prayer, which is a good Collect to pray, to Phyacedia? I think so. Uh, let us pray. Almighty God, who pourest out on all who desire it, the spirit of grace and of supplication, deliver us when we draw nigh to thee, from coldness of heart and wanderings of mind, that with steadfast thoughts and kindled affections we may worship thee in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen.